everyone. It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, Last Nighters. And Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media, where we're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. The is very important in that URL, so don't forget the the. So tonight, we're going to be doing Reds as episode 82 of the show. And this is a uh, going to be a fun one. We have a guest. His name is John Reed, and he's a communications professional who's been a writer and video creator for the past 20 years. He enjoys debating current events and explaining the blessings of liberty and how to get it as well as long walks on the beach. John's a movie buff, wine lover, and introvert who enjoys his time chilling at home or hanging out with a select few people who spike his intellect and curiosity and cats. He's a cat person. You can go to his website at johnreadcreative.com to check out more of what he offers in the ways of his communications profession. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me once again. It's been too long. Yes, indeed. Serious NPR style intro. I, you don't normally do that kind of stuff, but I liked it. I'm flattered and I really don't deserve it, quite frankly. Well, I'm, I'm trying to, to up the quality of the show because you are a professional and I want <laughs> to give the appearance that we are also professionals. It may be a little bit of a, a smoke and mirrors, a bit of a delusion, but we're talking about a communist movie. So why yeah. not start Much off? Like communism working, smoke and mirrors. The That's future right. works. I've seen it. I've seen it. So, uh, John, why don't you, um, I mean, I already told everyone about you, but is there anything you'd like to add um, before we get into the Google description and then start talking about this movie? Um, no, I think you said it mostly. I mean, the last time I was on here, I was doing a podcast with my friend Pat. Uh, as I was telling you before the show started, Pat moved to Wisconsin, the bastard. Uh, and we haven't done the podcast in a while. And frankly, I never wanted to do it in the first place. He kind of forced me into it. I didn't want to like start really getting into politics, but he forced me into it. And it was it was fun for a while. Uh, but he's moved on to better and greater things. So uh, I'm just uh, honored to hang out with you guys and uh, do whatever I can to promote liberty, even if it's through analyzing a, a movie about a, a pinko commie bastard like John Reed. Yeah, now that will give us plenty of fodder to talk about. And so, you know, there's basically no movie that can be chosen that we can't turn into some kind of like somewhat entertaining and somewhat educational fodder for the show. So this well, this will be just great. Well, the reason I chose this and it's, it, there's kind of a backstory when I was in college, um, I had to take an elective. I was I was in the honors program not to kind of like you know, build myself up or anything like that. But I had to take an elective honors course in order to make sure I completed the honors program. So what I was doing was I went to this professor who was teaching an ancient civilizations course and we were talking and I got into his course and he asked me my name and I said, John Reed. And he said, oh, uh, like the communist writer of the twenties. And I just was kind of puzzled as to what he meant. And he's like, oh, no, there was this there's this guy named John Reed. He had like, you know, he was in the writer in the 20s, the late teens of the, the 20th century. And there were a bunch of there were there were the John Reed clubs about, uh, that were comprised of these communist writers that were named after him. And I was I had known about the movie because, you know, I grew up in the 80s and it had been on HBO and I I was never really interested in it because I was kind of young and uh, the, the subject matter didn't really interest me much. So later on, I did watch it. And while I initially, because of the format, and you'll understand what I mean with the witnesses, the testimonies and everything like that, I was kind of not excited about it or not engaged with it at first. But the second time I watched it and the third time I watched it, it eventually became like a favorite movie of mine. And I think that the reason libertarians should watch this movie and 
correct me if you disagree, but I think there are a lot of things about communism and about socialism that libertarians will appreciate, especially the way later on in the movie that it kind of falls apart. Like the, the dream of communism, the dream of the utopian socialist society does not is not realized the way John Reed appreciates it uh, later on in the film. It I becomes more totalitarianism. It becomes more authoritarian. And uh, even though he sticks with it out of sheer pride, it's it's clear that it's not working out the way he initially thought it would. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's Emma Goldman who ultimately tries to convince him that he's wrong about that. But I, yeah, I, we, I think the movie mostly shows the, the futility and the overall mess that is the, the political process. Jack spends almost the entire film arguing with other communists and other socialists about who should lead this party and which party should actually be represented and the, is the officially recognized party of Moscow. And he ends up, I don't know, it seems like he spends a whole lot of time spinning his wheels and not actually convincing hardly anybody of his political ideas. But It seems like a fool's errand. Yeah. yeah. Daniel, you want to get into the uh, Google description, buddy? I do. Yeah. I do. I already have like so much I want to say, but okay, let's do the Google description. We'll get All there. Right. All right. We'll got all night, right? Right, everyone? Oh, and by the way, dear listeners, if you like what we do here, do give us a subscribe on the old Apple podcast or YouTube. Give us a rating and review. And our guest, John Reed, not the commie, but the not commie, did mention we have some pre-show content. We will also have some post-show content, which are available both for our Patreon supporters. So check it out at lastnighters.com slash Patreon to get a hold of that. So without further ado, let's get into the Google description, how we usually kick these things off. So we are talking tonight about Reds, and it is a 1981 drama slash romance, three hours and 20 minutes, according to YouTube or Google. They're the same thing, whatever. Uh, 7.4 on the IMDb, 3.5 out of 4 on RogerEbert.com. 92% Rotten Tomatoes, however, only only 79% of Google users like it. So that's a bit of disparity there. Yeah, and I don't understand that because I was a film student, and from a film perspective, it is really a great film, even if you don't agree with the subject matter from a libertarian standpoint or if you hate commies i think it really is a good film i think it's well acted i think it's well shot i think the dialogue is really good so i don't really get the the subpar ratings on it but i think it's a good film and uh again even though you don't like the subject matter possibly but uh i think it's well acted and i think it's well made okay john well we'll you and i will disagree a little bit on that <laughs> i think we'll get into it and maybe we can come to some kind of agreement but daniel okay. you go ahead buddy all right so here is the description American journalist John Reed, played by Warren Beatty, journeys to Russia to document the Bolshevik Revolution and returns a revolutionary. His fervor for left-wing politics leads him to Louise Bryant, played by Diane Keaton, who at the time was married uh, and who will become a feminist icon and activist. Politics at home become more complicated as the rift grows between reality and Reed's ideals. Bryant takes up with a cynical playwright, played by Jack Nicholson, and Reed returns to Russia where his health declines. This came out on Christmas 1981. The director was Warren Beatty. The star was Warren Beatty. The producer was Warren Beatty. And he won a Best uh, Director Oscar Academy Award for this film. And I think uh, they made about $40 million uh, in the box office. And the budget was pretty close to that. So that is our description. And uh, my one comment to you, John Reed, the not communist John Reed, is regarding the um, the ratings that are on here, the 92% Rotten Tomatoes. Those are the critics. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty high. You know, it, it, it probably got like high marks for its craft and how well it's made. But the Google users is like the U's and the me's going out there and reading this description and clicking this plus or minus on whether we like it or not. And I can see why an audience, just a you know, Joe audience might be like, oh, that's a super long kind of boring movie. So not as well uh, acclaimed from the masses. <laughs> I think it's a challenge because it's a very, like you said, it's a very long movie. It's like three hours and 20 minutes. Um, and I, I don't know if the version you had had the intermission kind of slide on it, but it's it's kind of quaint in that it was so long back in the day. It had an intermission where people in the theater could get up and get a snack or a drink or go to the bathroom th- during the intermission. It was like probably like 15 minutes, but that's how long it is. Although it's it's not unusual for movies to be that long now. I mean, like the the Avengers, Infinity Wars, or whatever are pretty lengthy movies, but they're entertaining. And this is very, um, this is not an action packed movie. It's it's a very slow moving movie from a dramatic standpoint. So I'm not surprised that your average audience, as opposed to your kind of elitist uh, journalistic uh, film critic point of view, I, I think they will like it a lot more than than the average joe i think that so i don't think that's surprising at all yeah we're so bougie us film critics here yes (laughs) now speaking of the intermission uh the irony of that is my wife and i we get like snippets of time where we can actually watch shows and movies and so we actually had to space this out over two days we made it about two hours into it and then shut it down um wednesday night and then we finished it last night and about five minutes into starting up where we left off the intermission starts like oh crap we could have could have made it to the intermission even though we didn't know it was there and uh in reading on this um i guess this was one of the last films to actually have an intermission there was has been one since um Mm -hmm. but yeah it is kind of a quaint kind of old-timey thing but you're right a lot of newer movies are getting really really long and uh, i think they're more action-packed and more entertaining so it kind of just goes by a little quicker I have actually had not seen um, any of the most recent Avengers movies, Endgame or Infinity War. So, Robert, maybe you can sp- spill some color on this. Not red, but, you know, just how how movies have gone into greater length and people are more willing to sit through them. Yeah, I don't know if necessarily that people are more willing to sit through long movies. Um, I, I definitely say that a movie like this has more confidence in its story than, say, like an Infinity War like they they're confident in their story, but they're, I don't know if they're confident enough to put an intermission in between to like, you know, break up the the action and the, the drama. Whereas this movie is like, well, we'll just slap one here in the middle and you'll come back. Right. You'll come back and watch the second <laughs> half. Come on, guys. Even though my big problem with this movie was that what's the big narrative push? Where's the weight? What's the central conflict? It seems to be about these two characters and their on and off again romance and in the, set it against this backdrop of World War One and the Russian Revolution. But it's just kind of like this slice of life telling the their their story of life, right? It's not necessarily that I mean there is one instance where Diane Keaton is trying to get to Russia while Jack is actually imprisoned in Finland. And you know, there's some, some drama there. Are they gonna get together? Are they not? And this sort of thing. But I found a lot of the the actual story weight to be kind of meandering and arbitrary as to what they were showing and what they weren't showing. I don't know. Like the the love triangle with the Jack Nicholson character never really amounted to anything. The um, Jack ended up dying in this Russian hospital, and nothing was ever actually like concluded. Like there was no actual central 
theme that, you know, really came home for me. So I don't know what my original point was, but I just started talking. No, Sorry. I, I think that's apropos because I think your point is that there, there was a lot of point to the movie. <laughs> Thank you. Which um, I kind of agree. Like in watching this, I kept waiting for something in the form of a story arc to, to happen. Because right. in reading about it, you know, Warren Beatty had, this has been a pet project of his for years, for like a decade, decade and a half before it got made. Um, he recorded something like three million feet of film, which is the equivalent of two weeks worth of footage. Wow. And he was like an obsessive compulsive type person in making this film. He would do multiple takes, like dozens of takes. And in one instance, Gene Hackman, who was in the film as a favor to a friend, not even paid, he did a hundred takes and he said, what the fuck do you want, Warren? I'm not doing 101st take. And he didn't. So they used one of the 100. And uh, it was so bad, apparently, that um, I guess Gene Hackman had been offered a role in Dick Tracy, like almost a, a 10 years later. Warren Beatty was, of course, the star and the director of that. And Gene turned him down. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> Fool me once. Shame <laughs> on me. And also, just a little bit more color to this. Um, apparently, Diane Keaton and Warren Beatty were were an item at the time. During well, Warren Beatty was an item with almost every actress in Hollywood during go, that time, so that's not but, surprising. But but apparently, uh, due to the rigors of the production and and all that, their relationship broke down because of you know his insistence on the number of takes and the perfectionism. And I mean, I can't tell my wife much of anything critical without it becoming an issue. So. I can only imagine what it would be like being the director on a film with your, you know, your girlfriend or whatever. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, a little bit of a, of, of a diversion there. But yeah, Robert, I, I will agree. I didn't really get what the story was um, until towards the end, you know, where they're like in the midst of the revolution. And you kind of see the idealism that he has. And I will say that he's right in the way, like we talked about a couple of episodes ago, where uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC are right about something's wrong. But then their solution is something that's going to make it worse. And I saw a lot of that in the John Reed character here. Me too. All, all the characters seem to be pointing to things that, I mean, they go a little bit overboard a lot of times when they talk about, um, oh, I'd have to look at it, my notes. But they do, they do a good job, you know, well, okay, so I'll say this. They get it wrong when they say that the capitalists are all exploiting the workers and that sort of thing. They don't understand economics in that sense. But they're absolutely right when they're talking about, like, Jack says in the very beginning that World War One is about profits, right? And you know, J.P. Morgan loaned England a billion dollars, so the U.S. entered the war on their behalf to be able to collect the debt and that sort of thing. I'm not exactly 100% sure on that history being correct, but it sounds like it would be a thing. It sounds legitimate to me. Yeah, that's like the, from the Smedley Butler, um, his book War Is a Racket, which we can post in the show notes page. But he's basically outlining that book uh, just in his little speech there. But go ahead, John. But this is one of the like the things I think libertarians should appreciate uh, in this story when he says profits. Uh, that might be true, but who is in who is guaranteeing the profits for whoever, like the corporations, or uh, there wasn't really a military industrial complex at this point. But if he's worried about corporations or companies making profits then who's enforcing that? I mean, companies can't legally go to war. No no company, no corporation is going to go to war with Germany uh, or whoever. Um, so who's guaranteeing that they are going to be looking, pr sitting pretty at the end of the, at the end of the war with whatever industry they're going to, the, they're going to, the, 
to supply with uh, with whatever's left after Germany's defeated or whatever. So I think while his his analysis of profits is why the war is being fought isn't necessarily wrong. It's like like Robert said, what's the solution after that is that it's not greater government that the socialists want, the progressives want. It's it's less government. It's and you gotta you gotta appreciate at the at the same time that this is all going on, Mises is writing his best works, um, uh, socialism and human action or whatever. I'm I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but he's writing Mises is active during this time. He's trying to to write a to to kind of temper what's going on the, the growing rise the, the rise of socialism um but i'm sure jack reed does isn't even aware of mises at this point so his analysis of what the problem actually is is completely backward yeah it really seemed that this little insular group of artists and playwrights and political activists in greenwich village were really kind of uh living in this bubble of thought and then you know they talk about reading marx and engels and that sort of thing but it didn't seem like you had a whole lot of external ideas coming in like a, a ludwig von mies right and let me say the libertarian nerd in me was geeking out in this movie about all the communism and all the economic fallacies and all that sort of stuff but i i wonder how uh, it probably speaks to the the average reviews from the normal viewers that all that would be lost and then they're left with just this long meandering movie but anyway daniel i know you got something to say Oh, man, like a million things, but I can't express myself monosyllabically <laughs> enough to understand any of it. Uh, yeah, so back to the profits thing. I know I'm going to harp on this a little bit. Uh, the profits that, that he's denouncing and we're, de we're denouncing are the croniest profits from the government buying products from the, the companies that make war machines. Yep. So it's, but I'm sure John Reed, the commie in the movie, is saying profits in general are bad when there's a distinction to be made between cor corporate crony profits and profits for satisfying the wants and desires of your fellow man in a voluntary way. And those are two very different things. And profit is a very important signal to tell you whether you're allocating resources appropriately or not. And it's one of the cruxes of economic calculation, which is one of Mises's big critiques of socialism. And that book came out in 1920. Mm -hmm. And Emma Goldman almost, almost comes to this realization by the end of the film when she says this kind of system that the Bolsheviks have put put together as a top-down central planning system that can't work. It doesn't work and it can't work. Now, she's looking at it not in the, you know, you don't have a way to economically calculate, but she's looking at it more in the way that you can't have one small group of people having all the power dictating out to the masses and expect a good result. And she was actually highlighting how, you know, there's nothing on the store shelves, there's the, the trains aren't running on time, the buses aren't running on time, all of these problems are, are, are because there was such a... a centralized control on every aspect of life. And in fact, John Reed, when he gets um, to Russia the second time, I think, uh, and he says, oh, I, I, I need to leave. I need to go back. And my wife, you know, she's she needs to hear from me because we had some issues right as I was leaving. I said, I'd be back by Christmas. And he's like, and the Russian dude was like, no, you're part of this now. You can't leave. And that was that was like one of those gotcha bitch moments where he's like, all right, that's what you wanted. You wanted socialism. Well, here, you, here it is. Yep. You can't be an individual anymore. Which is really weird why his character doesn't have a, like a complete arc. He dies like this true believer. Like, I guess it's the cognitive dissonance that he has to keep believing in this because he's invested so much in these ideas. But you would think that when he comes to Russia for the second time and he quits that one council because he's just like, oh, I'm fed up with you guys. You guys won't listen to me and blah, blah, blah. You'd think he'd come around, but no, he dies a, a true believer, which it makes me wonder why this, this movie 
has him as the central character. Yeah, well, I don't know how how you want to go through the movie. I mean, I think that the first third of the movie, I think if we want to uh, set the table for libertarians who might be interested in watching this movie, I think we should let them know that the first third of the movie is kind of like establishing John Reed and Louise Bryant as characters and who they were during this time. And their kind of tumultuous relationship and the the kind of work that they did. Uh, Louise Bryant tried to make it as a writer. John Reed was already an established writer. Um, Emma Goldman is introduced. Max Eastman is introduced. Uh, these are very principled people, even though if you don't if you don't agree with their principles. And this is kind of what I I kind of this part of the movie is kind of interesting to me because as much as I hate communism, I hate socialism. I will say that the people who represent the communist movement, the socialist movement at this time, at least they were kind of principled and they understood that once the revolution happened uh, in their world, in their minds, that people were going to have to work, the workers were going to have to contribute to society as a kind of contradiction to today's communism where everybody wants to paint murals, everybody wants to live off the production of the rich people and get free healthcare, get free college education, whatever. Or paint they, over murals, right, Robert? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there, there is like a paradox where like if you look at the, the Russian propaganda at that time, it was kind of like posters of men and women rolling their sleeves up and getting work done and, and things like that. Whereas, whereas now you're all about... Uh, feelings and and identity politics and 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 making sure that that pansexual non-binary people are allowed to express themselves uh, to the to the greatest extent that they can. Um, there was something to admire about the comic. They really thought it would work in the sense that everybody was going to collectively work and have the right work ethic toward making society work. So it, it is interesting to see this dynamic played out in this movie, which is one of the things, especially Emma Goldman, I think she was very principled. Max Eastman was very principled, and they, they wanted to see a collective society work. And as you said, eventually Emma Goldman comes to the point where she realizes this isn't what we signed up for. Yeah, now right. I would agree to a point, uh, but even even these principled people lack principles yes so many Obviously, yeah. and, and they're significantly contradictory like mm -hmm. it opens with john reed or at least um the uh, witnesses and these are actual people who knew the real the real people yep. uh, one of the guys said oh yeah john reed yeah he wanted to make a million dollars by the time he was 25 that's a, not a very commie thing right right and well, then, it's very bernie though well although he had, he had to wait until he was like 75 to do it yeah and now he's he's running again for a fourth house yeah. i think <laughs> Um, oh, and it's a funny thing. He, he got in trouble for uh, not paying a, a $15 wage. <laughs> so he had to cut, oh, out. he cut hours. And now he's getting sued over it. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, um, what was the other thing that was contradictory? Oh, they had a sign uh, in their apartment in Greenwich Village that said, property is theft, come in. <laughs> and then later on, when she's complaining about all the people being there all hours or whatever. Yeah, right. Like, or he's like to her, oh, yeah, just kick him out. You know, like, yep. well, hold on now. <laughs> You just said property theft, and now now you're trying to control this space, right? Yeah, that that stuck out to me too. That was really uh, quite quite amusing. I wrote that in my notes. But what a time! I mean, this is an interesting time for them to pick out to talk about socialism because this is the giant upheaval. It must have been very very exciting for these people who believed in these ideas to have the Russian Revolution occur. Like, mm -hmm. imagine if if Russia went AMCAP tomorrow. You know, it'd be super exciting. Wait a minute, they haven't? Because I keep getting told I'm a Russian bot. <laughs> um, and by the way, just 
so there's a little bit of background. The Russian Revolution was actually two revolutions, right? right. There was one in the spring, right. the Kerensky government, and then the Bolsheviks took over a weakened, disarrayed um, state. And Tom Woods has a really good episode on this. I think it's uh, episode 399 of his show. So tomwoods.com slash 399. You can get the background on both the Kerensky and the Bolshevik Revolution and then the horrors since. And I'll also have some uh, links on the show notes page, which can be found at lastnighters.com slash 82. Anyway, I digress. Digress, sir. Well, someone had a head of steam and now, now I just, I blew it. Well, <laughs> well one, I mean, one thing I will point out um, that one of the earlier scenes uh, when they're sitting around the, the restaurant and, and just talking about, you know, politics and everything, like one of the things Emma Goldman says is that the capitalists can take us into war whenever they want. And also she remarks that voting is the opium of the masses and every election voters simply deaden their pain, which I thought was very insightful. And I, you know, if you Google, if you Wikipedia, Emma Goldman, she is an anarchist. She's not a communist in the sense that she believes in authoritarianism. Like, I mean, we have to understand what communism was in the Marxian sense. Marx believed that communism was the natural evolution after capitalism. He thought that eventually there had to be an authoritarian state, but it, it was it was only necessary so that it could dissolve itself later on and the workers could um, eventually take over and, and run the economy themselves. So that's I think where Emma Goldman was coming from, and her this this is what led to her disillusionment later when she realized that the Soviet Union was nothing but an authoritarian regime and and not the the kind of workers' revolution, the workers' run uh, system that she thought it was going to be. Yeah, for sure. Now Emma Goldman's got all kinds of interesting quotes. I don't think she's perfect, but I think she has her heart in the right place. I think she could have benefited from maybe reading some Mises, but there's a here's a here's a quote. We Americans claim to be a peace-loving people. We hate bloodshed. We are opposed to violence. Yet we go into spasms of joy over the possibility of projecting dynamite bombs from flying machines upon helpless citizens. It's from a speech in 1908. That's yeah. kind of prophetic. That's a great quote. And it reminds me of the scene uh, where they're um, grilling uh, Bryant at Congress or whatever. And she's like retorting back to the guy. Like, they're like, are you a God-fearing Christian? And she's like, well, I was raised I was baptized. baptized. And uh, she totally turned it around on him and and made it so well you're saying so is this god-fearing nation is the one going out and projecting violence out in the world i forget the exact quote but that's kind of the gist of it like he was trying to make her out to be the bad guy but she flipped it right on him and he was brilliant right she's like if this is christianity i'll take atheism anytime and during that that testimony she also notes that uh in the soviet in the ussr the uh the women have the right to vote which is kind of interesting because they have the right to vote but what are they voting for you know it's not like they're voting for you know uh uh, optimal expression of the of the individual they're 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 voting for their own oppression much much like americans do even though they they aren't quite as oppressed as as people in the soviet union were but it's she made that as like a real selling point of 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 communism or bolshevism where that the, the thing you're voting for isn't really appealing even though you have the right to vote right yeah and then um that was also during the time when it was right after the revolution, when all of the platitudes were still in place, you know, and everyone was like still excited about it. And so voting was still kind of a thing. And it was before the authoritarianism really took over because mm -hmm. that was a few years later that they showed where Emma Goldman was like, Hey, they're rounding people up. I, I might be next, you know? Right. And right. so in yeah, a, the, the communist outlaw of the church. church. Right. And the, the cleansing of people who are doing wrong think, uh, right. had right. 
started yet. Yeah, and if um, the 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 one character, the I mean, who is an actual person that that Jack encounters, who is uh, I want to get his name right, but it was uh, Grigory Zinoviev, um, who's uh, kind of like a he reminds me of Trotsky in the in the sense like you know he's got the big bushy hair, but he's like also very he makes an impassioned case for John Reed to stay and and work for the Department of Propaganda. You know he's he's very um, impassioned about what he's doing, and it, it, it's kind of like if you read about him on Wikipedia, just his Wikipedia page, it, it, it illustrates the tumultuous. Uh, evolution of the Soviet Union because he was he was very on board with Lenin uh, and then when Lenin died he had to like he had to kind of get into Stalin's good graces and he didn't that didn't last very long and Stalin eventually threw him in prison and then he uh, you know he got out but he was he was his his role in the in the in the communist government was very much diminished so even though he's very uh, impassioned in pleading his case why John Reed should stay eventually if you read what happens to Zinoviev later on it doesn't really work out well for him I mean he, the, the, the the communist utopia that even he envisions uh, even more so even more so committed than 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 John Reed is it just it just can't work I mean as Emma, going back to Emma Goldman she's like this is a system that cannot work because what we're in the end talking about is not a collective system where everybody every individual is on board and making the collective the economy work they're really what it ultimately boils down to is a few elite people uh concentrating power on their own and and just dictating what happens to the masses for good or for bad right and they can't possibly know all the downstream effects that are going to happen from their fatal conceit right Right. they they only know so much and that top-down control it never works because it can't work because there's no feedback there's no way of knowing whether you're allocating resources effectively or not. And anyone who dissents must be dealt with. Right. And it's not going to be a conversation. Yeah. It's not like it's not like the the people, the farmers who were growing grain or growing whatever crops they were growing in the Soviet Union uh, were going to work as they always had and contribute to the collective society, you know, selling grain or selling whatever products they had for whatever price they needed, even if even if it was like a set price by the government. No, the government wanted that food in the cities. They, you know, they 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 took whatever the farmers had in the countryside and they moved it to the cities because that's where all the people were concentrated. And that's why there was such mass starvation in the Soviet Union, especially under Stalin. And it's it's kind of like you said, the fatal conceit going back to Hayek in that even though how much you want it to work, your best laid plans are always going to gonna fall short because you can't understand what the needs of the people are or how to best allocate resources because you're not getting that profit and loss signal from the market. Right. And even in the film, they mentioned the 4 million people who died of starvation. And, and John Reed's response to this is near the end when he's chatting with Emma Goldman about yeah. the ideals and how sometimes you do need a to smash a few eggs, comrade. Right, exactly. <laughs> to make the cookies. And he's almost making that authoritarian um, argument or, or absolving them of all the violence and the uh, evil downstream effects that even unintended were preventable. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Robert. Sorry. No, I was just going to mention that to your point about the famines where especially Stalin came in and just kept the just robbing all the farmers of the grain led to what is known as the Holodomor, if anybody knows it was in 1932 and 33, and it's estimated to have killed between 3.3 to 7.5 million. Yeah, and uh, there was a great um, Mises University was last week in Auburn, 
uh, Alabama and Tom DiLorenzo gave a great talk, like 10 things millennials should know about socialism. So there's a YouTube video about that. And he actually gets into the death toll from socialism attempting to be implemented uh, among other things. And so I'll post that on our show notes page because it's, it's excellent. It's a very, very good speech. I posted it on Facebook and, and it got shared around a fair amount. And uh, yeah, it's really good. So yeah, there are photographs of the Holodomor of people selling human meat, which is great. You know, it's always a good sign. And um, there are you know, mostly children didn't make it through the Holodomor because, you know, small and didn't run very fast. You could catch them and eat them. It's it's just beautiful. It's like well, I, I Googled this online. I couldn't find actually any images, uh, but uh, I know Jordan Peterson in many of his talks talks about um, the posters, the propaganda posters that the Soviet government uh, put out reminding parents that it was wrong to eat their children. So that's how bad it was. You had to, you had to have propaganda posters reminding people that eating their children was a bad thing to do. <laughs> I right. mean, usually it's a thing that, yeah, you would know, but huh. Yeah, and you say what you will about capitalism, but I don't I don't remember ever uh, Walmart putting on a poster saying, oh, by the way, don't eat your kids. Yeah, and I'm used to propaganda being like telling you something that is actually incorrect. But in this case, yeah. I support this message. Right. <laughs> but it absolves them of their own blame. They're like, look at all these people eating their kids. We have to tell them not to do this. Right. It's not because they've robbed them of all their food. Right. Yeah. We'll just have allocated resources. Another propaganda campaign, just like we need another regulation and another law. And then all of a sudden, the bad things won't happen anymore. Just make it illegal to eat your kids. I don't understand. What's the problem? Well, it's another it's another economic consequence that nobody that the government itself doesn't recognize. Like, oh, well, college tuition is so expensive that can't be anybody else's fault but the greedy colleges and the universities, and we can't straddle the. Like, they never have an introspective kind of perspective in the sense that, like, oh, well, maybe we should get out of the uh, the the student loan business and maybe yeah, every intervention gets every intervention begets an additional intervention and. You know, back to your your point, Robert. I think we just need some common sense kid eating control, <laughs> and then it'll be totally fine. It's just Thank we're you. one away from the utopian solution here. Right, if your just, child is born right with a defect, if your if your child is born with a defect like Down syndrome, okay, then we'll grant you that you could probably eat it. But uh, if you have a healthy, normal kid, then it's probably wrong. All right, we're being facetious, everyone. Don't don't flag us for hate speech or whatever. This is. This is going to prevent me from getting my next job. I know it. <laughs> All right. So um, I wanted you brought up uh, Jordan Peterson. And so I actually had a point in the first portion of the film uh, in the um, the witnesses interviews. They're talking about John Reed being a man of principles and independent and a fighting man. Uh, but he's a man who wants to change the world. But he either has no problems or he refuses to face them. Mm -hmm. And I think that highlights this guy um, very well. And it goes to a, a big Jordan Peterson point where Hey, if you're going to go out and try to like fix the world, clean your room first. Make sure that yeah. your house is in order. Because if you can't even manage your own life, how can you ever hope to manage the lives of millions of other people? Right. It also speaks to a point we've made many, many times on this show in that clearly John Reed had all his other needs met, that he was able to go out and rabble rouse and complain about everything, about the workers and whatnots, because he's not busy digging a ditch. He had enough wealth. He came from a fairly wealthy family. Right. And I think that's the point. I think like that's that's indicative of the modern intellectual uh, progressive yeah. movement in the sense that who is being the, the the loudest voice for the downtrodden? It's the 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 rich intellectual progressive people who come from very well-to-do homes. And John Reed and Louise Bryan are no exception. I mean, they come from very well-to-do homes, 
And one of my favorite parts of the movie is the is the confrontation that Louise Bryan has with Eugene O'Neill when she goes to his his uh his apartment in in Manhattan, and he kind of lays it out to her like you know he's he's very skeptical of what she's laying down in the sense that she and Jack don't understand the American worker, and he he says it very I think poetically in the sense that. He says that the, the the dream of the American worker is to work hard enough so that they're rich enough never have to work again. It's not like they're they're really aching to get into this collectivist thing where they have to work re- even harder to make society work. They're just they're trying to live the American dream, and yet people like Louise Bryan and people like John Reed are setting these expectations for them that they will want to be part of this workers' revolution and be part of this making the socialist society work when that's not what they want at all. They just want better pay. They want more leisure time. They want better benefits. And it's just something that they, 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 they don't really recognize. I mean, John Reed makes that impassioned speech to the Soviet, to the Russian people at one point in the movie saying that the workers will not be disappointed. If you strike, you know, they'll be behind you and they'll, once you strike and once you you are part of the revolution, they'll they'll join the revolution and they'll rise up against the capitalists. No, that's not what they, they want at all. They just want higher pay and and shorter hours and more benefits and better working conditions. That's all they want. They don't want to they don't want this this socialist society where they're no better off than the, the guy that they're working next to who isn't might not be working as hard as they are. All right. So that's excellent. And I actually have an ironic ironical point. Related to that, when they were um, shooting that scene of that particular speech, the crew who was listening to the speech went on strike. And they were like, <laughs> we're being exploited. We're not going to record anything. We're not going to film anymore until we renegotiate our, our, our payment here. And so they increased their wage, each, each person, by $20 a day hmm. as a result. So they, they claimed exploitation against Warren Beatty. And he caved. And uh, I guess he no longer exploited them. So Warren Beatty was the Bernie Sanders of his time, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. A little better looking. I, I think he's a dashing man. In the- oh, yeah. He's a very handsome guy. <laughs> well, speaking of rich, young progressives, speaking up for the downtrodden and fighting for the rights of the oppressed, this movie did take place 100 years ago, essentially. Mm. And this really is just yeah, history repeating itself. I, is it just going to keep going like this? Like, or have we learned nothing? It feels like the American worker or the American bourgeoisie. What 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 is Doug Casey called the boobazi? So not the workers per se. Well, the the boobs like the Americana, uh, booba booba something. I don't know boobinous like the dummies. Uh, they don't want to work, so they they would be they would find this John Reed and uh, Bryant talk very appealing, right? This oh you don't have to work anymore. You're going to get your needs taken care of. This goes back to what you were talking about earlier, John, where the modern day AOC type progressives they don't want to work. They just want a lot of free shit. They mm-hmm. want the they want the credit for being compassionate with other people's money, right? While living in luxury, it's, right. it's amazing. Yeah, and it's amazing. Like the 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 you know early on again going back to early on in the film you, when you see the lifestyle that uh, John Reed and Louise Bryant and all the their friends and 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 cohorts are living. You know they're living out in New England. They're living out in that, that really nice beach house and everything. Um, that dream that 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 kind of lifestyle that that they're living i i i doubt it's very possible unless they're they're working in some high up their the high position in the government is not really is not really achievable in the communist the socialist society and the only way you're going to get that is by working hard in a capitalist society and it's very easy for them to to preach 
the virtues of the worker collective and the worker revolution from where they are. But if they ever had to live in that society where it was really established and the collective was all working for the greater good of society, they wouldn't be living in that by that standard. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't enjoy all the luxuries that they were, they were currently enjoying in America uh, while railing against the, the very system that they were living under and, and benefiting from. I mean, again, we're not saying that cronyism wasn't happening even way back then. We're just saying that the problems that they were wrecking, they, they, they were identifying in society were not the cause of capitalism, but they were the, the, the cause of cronyism and, and the, the ever expanding government uh, power uh, granting the, the benefits of the rich and powerful. Right, exactly. And you know, the great economic question is compared to what? And right. if you were to offer me, hey, the corporatist cronyist structure we have now or top-down totalitarian communism, socialism, I'll take mm -hmm. cronyism every day of the week. Now, yeah. I'm not saying I advocate for it and, and that I like it and I enjoy it, but at least there's some cracks with which you can have some freedom, right? right. When this is top-down uh, totalitarianism, you don't have that. I mean, well, there, there's the elite who are the, what do you call them? The, um, uh, what's the name? The apparatchiks. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert, we're, we're going to do uh, Chernobyl, I think, in a couple of weeks here. And yes. It plays up real big. We, we see this situation in reds fast forwarded like 50 years yeah um, yeah in, in chernobyl um what the fuck was i talking about my point um anyway yeah so blah blah blind i what that's what i do here um but yeah so yeah reed and uh brian they're not going to think of themselves of having to live subjected to what they're trying to impose on others they think they're going to be one of the apparatchiks one of the you know the high level people who's going to be like instituting this change right and and what's the old saying you scratch a uh, progressive and you'll you'll find a tyrant that's that's exactly what these people do yep yeah because within the heart of every revolutionary beats what is it the the beats heart of the lion within the chest of every revolutionary beats the heart of a dictator or whatever it is i don't know well, yeah. i think it's indicative of the the progressive mindset in that if they if only they were in power then the ideas that they're that they stand for put into practice would ultimately benefit the the even the the the, the working man and the 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 lowest people of the lowest class people of society would recognize how beneficial that their ideas are and they would eventually come around which i think is ultimately the the dream of collectivism is like once you see how beneficial all this great uh socialist all these great socialist programs are you're going to get on board eventually because it's it's just so beneficial that you'd have to be an absolute retarded rube to not see it and the fact that you know the the most recent election 2016 election that the the people so many people voted for trump i mean this is the progressive mindset they can't get their minds around the fact that anybody would vote for trump i mean eight years under obama they thought oh my god we're actually moving toward a progressive society and it's only going to get better from here and then trump gets elected and they can't they just the people on the coast the, the elites on the coast just can't get their minds around the fact that people in middle America think differently from them. And I think it's it's indicative of what we're seeing in the movie Reds is that Louise Bryant and John Reed just don't understand the American worker in the sense that like Eugene O'Neill spells out again in this is this scene that's my absolute favorite part of the movie is that these people just want to work to the point where they don't have to work anymore. And they they're not they're not interested in everybody having equality in the sense that they're all equally poor they they want the most the, the most benefits for the least amount of work for themselves and they don't want some totalitarian regime 
dictating what that means as far as like the the kind of product productivity they have to they have to put forth. Right. And then uh, just to expand on your point and bring back Jordan Peterson a little bit, he makes the point that whenever he hears real communism has never been tried or real socialism has never been tried, his his retort is, so you think that your one particular strand of if you were in charge, you would be the one to make it work. Well, there's somebody standing in the shadows right behind you waiting to take that power from you because it's there for the taking, right? It's it's one ring and it, it ought be destroyed. But since it's there for the taking and people being people, and greedy people wanting to be corrupted and, you know, Lord Acton style, take that power and be corrupted by that power. You're not going to live very long. And so your specific brand of socialism is not going to get implemented. And then the next person's is going to be the solution, but it's not going to get implemented either. And it all goes back to the Misesian insight in 1920 that it can't work anyway. And so, you know, well, isn't this why, isn't this why Marx said that Communism in the beginning is not going to be very pretty. It's going to be nasty. But eventually, when we get the new socialist man, then it'll all work out. Yeah, when we're all brainwashed automatons, it'll be great. Right. So he, he's just thinking that he's going to change humanity. That's this is progressive idea that we're going to we're working towards this new socialist man. It really right. seems to be this progressive ideology that it's ever going to happen. And they're living in these bubbles where they all agree with each other. And they, yeah, like you guys were saying earlier, they can't wrap their heads around that anybody would think differently. Right, yeah, and that's a Rousseauian uh, thing too, where he thinks uh, that you have to mold people to bend to the general will. So individuality is out. People who have wrong think are going to be expunged from society. And, you know, and and back to your point, uh, John Reed, the non-communist, the elites on the coast voting for Hillary, they couldn't imagine anyone else thinking differently than them, and they don't attribute any critical thought to the other side of the argument. They, right. they aren't even aware of it. They just attribute it to being racist, homophobic, and evil, evil intent, hating people, hating themselves, being too dumb. I remember being a left-leaning progressive type growing up and thinking, oh, those rubes, those conservatives, they, they're just trying to enforce their religion on me. They're, they just don't understand. They're just right. dumb. And now I understand it's kind of the opposite. Like the elitist mindset is, oh, I already know everything, even though I've been indoctrinated in a public or government schooling system that is force feeding me propaganda, telling me that the solution to everything is more government. And it's and it's your duty as a progressive to correct the mindset of these people who just don't get it. And if that takes, you know, cracking skulls, they're absolutely fine with doing that. But they are going to make society shape society in the way that they feel best. And it's, it's, it's going to be through violence. And even though they, they theoretically are against violence, that that's the theoretically, they think that once again, once they implement these programs, once everybody sees the benefit of everybody collectively working for the greater good, everybody's just going to get on board and they're just going to ignore their human instinct of self-interest. I don't know how they square that circle, but that's their mindset. And this, Unfortunately, the only way that they're actually they're ever going to do this, which I think is the ultimate paradox of anarcho-communism, is that you're never going to get people to get on board with putting their self-interest aside in order for the greater good. Maybe for a little while you are, maybe in some aspects of society you are, but ultimately people are going to look out for their own interests and for to better their own situation. So ultimately, as Emma Goldman realizes in the end, although I think for the wrong reasons that we would, you're talking about a system that cannot possibly work and can only end up bad. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using this movie as my soapbox. I'm hardly talking about the movie. 
<laughs> but I'm just ranting. But I think it's so long that I think that we have to dissect the different ideas that are in the movie rather than go step by step again, because it's like three hours and 20 minutes. Right. Well, yeah, like you were saying, I mean, a guy like Jack, I would assume would be like one of these modern day Antifa types, very extreme political people. And since they claim to align themselves with the anti-fascist, they say that any ideas that aren't ours, any ideas that we disagree with are so dangerous that they essentially constitute violence because when carried out, those ideas always lead to the worst outcomes. So we are justified by hook or by crook, usually by violence, to deal with those ideas, even though, of course, the solution to bad ideas is more ideas. It doesn't make sense to beat up a guy who you disagree with. It doesn't change that person's mind. It doesn't frighten away other people, especially when you're some 20-year-old sandal-clad Berkeley person. <laughs> anyway, sure, I don't know. Non-binary yeah, yeah. thing. Non-binary, pansexual. <laughs> I mean, you're not afraid. You're not scaring anybody away. That anybody could actually defend themselves. But you know, like like I was saying, they're all indoctrinated and believe that more government is the solution. But they don't seem to realize the government has led to the deaths directly of over 420 million people in the 20th century alone. 100, uh, 123 million through war, which World War One is a backdrop to this film, and 262 million killed at the hands of their own government. Citizens killed at the, at the hands of their own government. Well, in the very beginning, when they first go to Russia, bringing it back to the movie a little bit, when Jack first goes to Russia, he gets there off this train and he's, he's getting driven around the city. And don't they, isn't that the scene where he sees the bread lines? Yes. Yep. And, and, the, the, and the, the, the one guy that they're, they're in the car with says, uh, do we have to overthrow the czar so we can stand in line for bread? Yeah. So you think that would give Jack like a clue? Like, yeah, <laughs> this isn't going so well. Like, what, what are we doing here? This is going from bad to worse. Yeah, and, and we're not apologizing for the czar. Things weren't great under the czar. In fact, right. I believe Russia was like a third world level country relative to the other countries at the time. Yeah. It, it wasn't like it was a great situation. It was a it was a agrarian peasant society that was going on. And so, yeah, I mean, people weren't progressing as quickly as the West. And, and a lot of people have to realize like what Russia was before then. It was a very feudal system. Uh, you know, the, the czar was always in charge and there was always like a very monarchical monarchical i don't know if that's the right word uh system in the sense that like there were there were always peasants and then there were the ruling class so they never had like a real industrial base from which to work once the bolshevik revolution happened in fact they actually had to invite industrialists from america to come over and teach them how to run factories so it wasn't like that they had any kind of foundation to work from that they could just oh well the czar was in front in charge of all this stuff and the capitalists were in charge of all this stuff. So now we're just going to take it over and now it'll be run by the people. Uh, no, it was, it was very much so like, okay, well now we have the Bolshevik revolution. What do we do now? Like, how do we, how do we make cars? How do we make equipment? How do we make anything? Uh, let's bring in people who already know how to do it so that they can teach us. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting system in the sense that this was the first real communist experiment that had no industrial base from which to start. So it's not like it's like, like America, which had already been through the industrial revolution suddenly had a workers revolution and now we're all communists and the, the, the workers just took over the factories. It was a very much, this country did not have a tradition of entrepreneurship. It didn't have a tradition of industrialization. Um, it just had a, a tradition of oppression from the top down. And that didn't change any from when the, the Bolsheviks took over. And that's, that was the, the disillusionment that happened with Emma Goldman. It's like she thought that eventually the state was 
would dissolve itself, which is ultimately the dream of Marxism. But of course, that that just didn't happen. It just couldn't happen in any in any kind of scenario, in any real world scenario. Right. Imagine the people who advocate for that say that human nature is such that you can't trust capitalism. Well, what do you expect is going to happen when you have people in control right. of the state with absolute power? You think they're going to give that up? Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Robert. Imagine the hubris it would take to be one of these revolutionaries where you're like, we're going to take over this government and then we're going to run everything. We know right. how to best run the automobile industry and farming and technology and communications and the mail. I just And then the nuclear industry just blows my mind. Way. Isn't that what we have now with like all these uh, the the candidates, the presidential candidates, you know, back going back to 2016, whether it was Republicans or now the Democrats, how they have a plan for everything, you know, that, that they the hubris in the sense that they have the solution for health care, for college, for whatever. I mean, like the, the Elizabeth Warren's big thing is that she's going to save capitalism. What does that mean? Like, how do you know? How do you know how to save capitalism? Like, what do, what do you know about capitalism in the, in the pure sense? Like, you faked your Native American heritage in order to get like a, a pristine position in a Harvard University. Like, what is your what is your experience with starting a business and growing a business and going through the failures and the and the, the trials and tribulation it takes to make the business successful? Your whole life has been has been exploiting other people or, or or getting positions of power in order to better your own position. So what do you know about serving other people and, and providing value for other people? Yeah, it's got about- a plan, John. It's got a plan. They must think of themselves as like superheroes. It's like, I've got a plan. I'm going to go out and save the world. It's yeah. madness. All right. So we're getting, we're bumping up against time already, unfortunately. Yeah. But I did want to bring up one other thing that's a bit contradictory and a bit of a gotcha bitch moment, which happens multiple times in the film. And this is related to that cheating Irish whore from Portland, uh, which is what Jack Nicholson calls her in your favorite scene. And it, it goes back to the very first open of the movie when she meets um, Jack at, you know, at that uh, dinner party and she decides to interview him. And he asks her, Jack asks, asks her if, if she's married or something and she dodges the question. And then they all night talk about stuff and she's into this, you know, free love stuff or whatever. And then they, she ends up moving to New York with them into Greenwich Village and all this stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, do whatever I want. Don't ask questions, whatever. And then when it comes down to it, after she cops to sleeping with uh, the Jack Nicholson character, she asks him if or he, he lets it drop that he slept with some other people. Right. And she goes, oh, tell me about this. And he goes, what, you want to list? And that was a big gotcha bitch moment because like you were just preaching that that's how you want to live. And now right. you're going to rake him over the coals for this very, very same thing. Um and, you know, that's another thing of them being contradictory and not having their house in order. She advocated for one thing, but then when it came down to it, she was totally against that when it was applied to her on an individual level. And it's also setting the rules for other people, but not having to live by them yourself. I mean, let, let's say, for instance, that John Reed and Louise Bryant were the head of the, the Socialist Party of America and that party got into power. I mean, do you think that they would be living the lifestyle or, or living a lifestyle any differently than them that they were when they were living in that in that nice little cottage in in New England, uh, while other people were were living in cramped uh, quarters in in Manhattan or or Baltimore or Philadelphia or wherever, um, no, they like they would they would get the most posh uh, posh situations for themselves and not worry about the the downtrodden how the downtrodden people were living. I know that like at the end of the film, you know Louise has the the, the 
babushka on on her on her head and she's acting like a real peasant woman like a real worker woman but then like if you read her wikipedia uh biography you know she she marries some rich guy and moves to paris like after john reed dies you know a few years later so she's not acclimating herself to living a a socialist lifestyle in the sense that she has to really you know, get her get her fingers dirty uh, and 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 dig in the dirt to 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 make society work. You know, she's looking for the best possible situation she can with the least amount of effort she can. Like the Bolsheviks when they moved into the Winter Palace, and they're just like, exactly, hey, we'll take yep. this. This is great. Yeah. Why would we go already, anywhere else? This is we already awesome. got a setup for us. It was already <laughs> made by the Tsar. So why are we why are we toying with uh, what works? I think right. it would have been perfect, a little bit more appropriate at the end of the movie if John had died because he couldn't, you know, it was all socialized medicine, so communist medicine, he couldn't see a doctor. So I think he was on a waiting list, that would have been funnier. But. Well, I mean, socialized medicine clearly didn't help him. Didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a kidney failure in the movie, but I guess in real life he had typhus. He, he had died. typhus at the end. And ironically, the, the in the middle of the movie, he had to have his kidney removed. And, uh, you know, the doctor, at one point, the doctor who said to him, he, he's, he's like, okay, well, what do I owe you? You can just bill me. And the, the doctor says, well, do you have any money? He says, no. He's like, well, then why would I bill you? Get out of here. And so like under the capitalist system, the doctor is telling him like, you have no money? Well, get out of here. And the, in, the, in the communist system, he dies. You know, again, he has typhus. Yeah. So you can't really like say, well, it was just like a common cold or something. He died of a common cold. But if you're comparing healthcare systems, which one told him to like, well, you have no money, get the hell out of here versus, oh, we're going to keep you in a dirty, cramped, uh, windowless hospital uh, and you're going to die about two days later. Right. And and just to put a point on it, he tells him to get out of there after rendering service. Like, right. Exactly. It's not like, oh, you need your kidney removed? Get out of here. Right. <laughs> Which is what the you know progressives want us to think that's how things would exactly. go. Um, one other kind of economic point I wanted to make, and this is related to Mises human action when he's in jail in Finland and then gets out and he's with Emma Goldman. He's like sending cables to Bryant and trying to like get a hold of her and nothing gets answered. Nothing gets answered. He doesn't know this, that she's like traversing the earth trying to get to him. But Emma, Emma's response to him is why doesn't she answer? I think she has answered. you. Right. Like, not action is action, right? right. That's human action, right? Not, not doing something is a choice and you're choosing to not do something. And that indicates your preference. So right. I thought that was a good point to just shoehorn in here for economics angle. From yes. Well, here's another economic point though. Um, at one point when Jack is kind of complaining about the conditions in Russia, he doesn't blame it on communism. He blames it on all the other countries that surround Russia and they're like strangling them, right? Oh, they're not doing business with them. Anymore. argument now. What we hear yeah. about Venezuela now, yeah. Right, yeah. so, I mean, on the one hand, you're offsetting all your problems, you're just like blaming other people, but also you're recognizing that trade creates wealth, and then but, you're, but also, you're removing through communism the, the the reason for trade? Like, there is, is there even trade in communism? I don't even know. But isn't that their their whole promise is like the, the, the a communist society is the self-sustaining kind of regime that provides all that the that the people need so what does it matter whether that there are sanctions against venezuela right. or russia or wherever like shouldn't they have the the means and the resources to at least sustain themselves until the sanctions are lifted i like and and why is it like you know america is it wasn't as big as it as it is now back then 
So couldn't they find some kind of backdoor trading partner? Like China's right there, you know, Mongolia's right there, all these other nations are right there. So how how expansive is the the the, the American government's reach or the British government's reach and that they couldn't trade with anybody at that point in order to 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 meet the needs of the people rather than let however many people it was, four million people, I think uh, Emma Goldman says in the movie, starved to death. Why did that happen? Yeah, those nasty embargoes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the things that um they would retort with is, well, that's why we need worldwide communism. You know, that's why it's the international and they need worldwide revolution because yeah. we need to all work collectively together worldwide. There can be no dissent, no, no wrong thing, no uh, individuality. And then it'll work magically, unicorns and fairy dust. And yet even back then, the way they would often answer the the socialist price calcul- price calculation problem was that, oh, well, like the, the way we'll understand prices or the way we'll determine prices is that we'll look at the free market countries and understand what the price should be for bread or for cotton or whatever it is. So even if they wanted global communism, well, then if they achieve that, then there's no way to understand what the prices should be for, for consumer goods. Right. Yeah. They would kill the, the only <laughs> information telling gold. <laughs> the only metric they have is gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a, a I don't know, like it, it always, amazes me that people who advocate for this top-down control style, you know, progressive socialism, democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, um, they're not okay with you living individually or free of them. Like they won't allow that. Whereas in an ANCAPI society that I would advocate for, you're free to have a commune if you want, right. go for it, but they can't return the favor. Well, that's, that's really what, uh, my, my girlfriend is from New England and I've learned a little bit about you know, the New England states there because New Hampshire is different from Vermont and, the, and Vermont's different from Maine. And the one thing that she tells me about Vermont is that they really are anti-government from a federal standpoint, or at least traditionally they are. I don't know really about now, but one thing that she said was that they want to live, they want their own kind of like individual societies and the, the like the, the communes kind of societies, the, the townships, and they don't want any interference from government. And so it's sort of like, yeah, that's the NCAP vision. We want them to live however they want to live without somebody from San Francisco telling them how they should live. We want them to determine how they should live on their own. And if the people in New Hampshire want to have guns and want to have a free market and everything, they should do that too. And the great thing about ANCAP or anarcho-capitalism is that no matter what your system is in New Hampshire, it doesn't have to impose upon what's going on in Vermont. You know, we can all just live our own lives the way the way that we want. And if that means communism in, in Vermont and free laissez-faire capitalism in New Hampshire, why is that a problem? Like there's no political system that should that should interfere with either, either of those systems. Right. And I'm sure eventually, not and not not too far after that, we would see the uh, contrast between a North and South Korea or an East Germany versus West Germany. Right. And we would just let people understand, like, look at look at the examples that are being set in a free society, in a voluntary society, and see what works best. All right. I have one last comment before we do final summaries and reviews. And, and you guys feel free to chime in on any last notes you have, because we are we're, we're going to be a little extra long on this marathon length movie here. But I wanted to bring up the point that the anti-war candidate wins. Every time, as as they talk about it in this, Wilson ran anti-war, Teddy Roosevelt ran anti-war, and I think, Robert, you've mentioned this many times, I think almost every candidate who's been the anti-war candidate has been the winner in the presidential elections, and yet, most of the time, they go back on it a short time later. Yeah, whenever it's, uh, except when it's uh, like a repeat guy, right? Like, 
Obama in his second term, he wasn't running as an anti-war candidate, right? He wasn't right. running on change. Well, he didn't have he to. He changed it from change to like hope or whatever it was yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, whenever there's a new, a new person, they're always, look at this old guy. He's terrible. Vote for me. I'm anti-war. But it doesn't matter. You're yeah. always you always you're always voting for the uh, military industrial complex in the, in the deep state. So, yep. Yeah, and I did like that they called Teddy Roosevelt a maniac in this. Uh, <laughs> I heard some Rothbard lectures, and yeah, he literally was a maniac. Uh, and Rothbard has uh, great lectures on this on this era, uh, the Progressive Era, and a, and a book that just came out, um, I think, last year that's uh, put together by Patrick Newman, who was able to read Rothbard's handwritten notation uh, related to the book, and so it, is, it actually became a book that came out 20 some odd years after Rothbard's death. Uh, and it's really good. I, I have it on my shelf behind me here and uh, I highly recommend it. I'll put that as a link on our page. Uh, John Reed, not the communist. Any uh, final notes before we get into winding down here? Yeah, I think uh, just one last point at the very end of the film um, when uh, Jack is going on the trip with uh, Zinoviev to the Middle East um, he, you know, he's, he's in bad health conditions and he realizes that somebody has changed his speech, the translation of his speech to make it a, a holy war against the capitalists rather than a, a class war. And he finds out later that Zinoviev changed his speech and he gets into a very impassioned, uh, rant about how, when you, you know, you change or when you alter or when you limit free speech you limit dissent and when you limit dissent you limit individuality and it's really interesting again going back to the perception of socialism versus the reality of socialism in that jack reed has this very utopian vision of what socialism is is that everybody is going to live as an individual while living in a collective at the same time and going to be able to express themselves in any way that they can while he understands, gets a gets a good hard lesson in, in understanding that the people who are in charge are ultimately going to dictate what's communicated to the people. So that even like the artists in the Soviet Union or the or the 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 journalists in the Soviet Union are always going to filter down what the people in charge are going to want to communicate. So he's getting a very quick lesson as to what authoritarianism means and why socialism can only lead to authoritarianism because if if Zinoviev was to not alter speech if he was to let people just express themselves as they want then people might the citizens might understand that individualism rather than collectivism is the way to go and that would screw up the the entire soviet uh, uh society um so I, th I think that was a real interesting part of it and again like i think my reason for recommending this film to you guys for this podcast was I think this is a very good film for libertarians to to view and understand and see like why their their principles are 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 the correct way to go. And it's really illustrated right there in even the utopian socialist vision uh, becomes blatantly like real to to even those who who aspire to a utopian society. I don't know if I said that very clearly, but. There it is. Yeah, it sounded like you said something. A little word. word <laughs> Those were words. It's late. It's I'm on the East Coast, man. You're on the West Coast. <laughs> All right, Robert. Any final notes before we get into the wind up? No, we we covered everything I got, so we can just start up. All right. Well, you're on deck. Go for it, man. All right. So Jack, to me, as our central character, he strikes me. He struck me as very real, real character, like we mentioned throughout the show tonight as this kind of progressive, care hard, kind of more caring and less knowing, very naive, like 
idealist, right? Like he's going to go out and he's got these ideas. He's read some books and he's around a bunch of other people that have read the exact same books and he's going to agitate and he's going to gain control of the ring of power and he's going to help change the world for the better. Everybody wants to change the world for the better, but few people are so full of hubris and naivete that they think that they can do it through violence and this political process, which is Jack finds out it's a clusterfuck, but he remains this true believer all the way to the end. He's like a modern day progressive that are just, it's, it's a dogma. It's an ideology. It, it doesn't really look at the world as it is. It, it, they think in terms of the world as which they want it to be their ideal world. And anybody that any problems are a result of these wrong thinkers or the people that just aren't aren't on board this train. And we just need to get them on board with our amazing ideas. And then we can actually have our utopia. It's insanity. It's childlike. And Jack remains that way from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And uh, it's a long meandering mess. But I will say that, yeah, the inner libertarian nerd in me geeked out the whole time. Oh, we got to talk about that. Oh, we got to talk about this. Look at that. Look at that. Property is theft. We got to do this. We got to do that. There's all kinds of great stuff. This is a fantastic movie. I'm glad Jonathan recommended it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to like your average normie. I think he's going to get bored. But for political junkies and libertarian people, which is, I assume, the bulk of our audience, absolutely, you should be checking this out. I think you'll have a great time. It is long, but it's, it's I would say it's fairly well done, fairly well written. Um, I don't know how much, you know, uh, BD did to write it, but whatever. Uh, apparently he had a lot of passion for this movie. It does show, although I don't think it necessarily follows like a three-act structure at all, but, um, and the, the love story didn't really grab me. It was okay, but I wasn't like cheering for them when, you know, they got together finally, and I was sad at the very end when he died, only because I saw the look, the very well acting by the lady, you know, when she obviously cared about him. So that was nice, but uh, overall, I'm going to say that this movie was not a very good movie, but I'm going to give it like a, uh, I'll give it a six because of the fantastic discussion that we had talking about it. Um, and I do recommend it. All right. Thank you for that, Robert. So Johnny kind of get the, uh, the gist of what we're looking for here, a little final summer interview and then a score out of 10. Yeah. Uh, the, I thought the love story actually was good in the sense that they were going for a very non-traditional kind of love, uh, relationship and ultimately like it, it, it was very difficult to maintain. So I think that kind of attests to something to traditionalism and the, the value of, uh, you know, traditional, traditional values. Um, this is one of my, this is actually one of my favorite movies. When I first saw it, I was a little bored with the format. I recommend if people are going to check this out to watch it once and then watch it again, like give it, give it some space and then watch it again. Um, especially if you're a libertarian and you're watching it with that filter, I think it, it holds a lot of value. I think it is a very well done movie. And I say this from somebody who went to film school and is looking at movies in in a very cinematic, uh, a kind of sense. Um, but I, I, I give it, I give it an eight and a half out of 10. Um, I, th I think this is really well done. I think you don't have to agree with the values that are, and I, I don't know how much of a communist that Warren Beatty, it really is. I, I, I sense that he's kind of maybe Marxist sensitive or Marxist uh, uh, friendly, but I don't know how much of a communist he really is. Uh, I think that 
a lot of a lot of movies have a lot of movie. There are a lot of movies that have like principles that you may not agree with, but are, that are very well done. I'm thinking of like uh, Conspiracy, which is about the uh, the meeting that the, the the Nazi Party had as far as like addressing coming up with the final solution to the Jewish question. That's a very good movie, even though you don't agree with the principles of the movie. So I think I think this is a really good movie, and I highly recommend it. I think again. Watch it once, give it a second chance, give it a second space, some space, and watch it again and, and look it in that filter, that libertarian filter. All right. Well, thank you for that and the uh, inadvertent dog whistle in there. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of Conspiracy, but now I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. I want to check it out. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that next. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We, we, we're not uh, one to shy away from uh, <laughs> sensitive subjects. And uh, in, a, in a funny way, I think we've handled many of them uh, pretty well. I think specifically, Robert, I'm talking about the um, Easter episode we did with the narco-Christian on the Passion of the Christ. I thought we handled that very deftly, and I was uh, I was quite nervous going into that one because we're both atheists, and we're talking to this Christian guy and about a, a very sensitive movie on Easter, <laughs> and uh, it worked out pretty well. So anyway, back to Reds. Um, this apparently was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite movies, and he actually had a special screening of it in the White House. I'm not sure what the appeal was, but apparently he knew Warren Beatty from his Hollywood days. And um, it was listed number nine on the top 10 list of epic films. And I think that's due to the length. Um, I will agree with both of your assessments in various aspects. One is uh, for the John Reed non-communist. This is a beautifully shot film. The cinematography is great. I think that the structure of the story is a little bit haphazard. Like, I don't understand what the point of the movie is. I did enjoy watching it, but that's because I have my ANCAP lens on and I can like, I understand what they're talking about and why they're wrong <laughs> about a lot of it. Um, so it, it's it's interesting in, to watch in that respect. But from a movie telling standpoint, I, I just it didn't click for me. And, and maybe it does warrant a second viewing, but I don't know if I can... <laughs> run that marathon again um yeah. but uh, i i do appreciate having watched it um this one time and having this amazing discussion as a result of it so thank you for that john this is a great recommendation and i also recommend this film uh for our audience to do check this out um but i wouldn't necessarily recommend it to just anybody um i think that they do kind of have to have that uh inoculation against some of the some of the ideas presented here just so that they can see them and then kind of understand like why they don't work. Right. Um, and there, there are a lot, like, again, like my favorite scene in the movie where, where Eugene O'Neill confronts Louise Bryan about when she, when she visits him in an apartment, I think that, that kind of content appeals very much to libertarian perspective. Um, I think it does take a lot of patience, but I think that libertarians will find a lot of value in this movie. Yeah, I'll, I, I agree. And so with that, I'll give it a, uh, a seven. Uh, for me. So I'm kind of like averaging out between the two of you. Now, Robert. Yes, sir. Cue your line regarding next week's episode. It's that time of the month? That's right, baby. Yeah, baby. It's almost that time of the month. That's right. We'll be back next week with our next installment of the summer series we're doing with Pat McFarlane of Liberty Weekly, where we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. This next one is a continuation of our last episode where Commander Data was uh, on trial for his life, for his being a sentient being and having self-ownership. Well, we're going to continue that with going down the family tree, if you will, in an episode called The Offspring, where Data creates a quote-unquote child, and then the rights of that child come into question. So that will be the episode that we do next week with Patty McFaddy. Farley. You know, I was, I was watching uh, Red Letter Media. They did a, 
recap of all the new um, comic book stuff coming out of Comic-Con. That's, that's just, just this past week. And there's a new trailer for Star Trek Picard. And in that trailer, there's this woman. And they're, they're speculating about whether it is like a half woman, half Borg person, or if it's perhaps Data's child. So that might be in the new series, this, this Data child. So we might be on it perfectly appropriate doing this episode right now, Daniel. Imagine that. Wow, we almost we almost never do that. I, I enjoy being timely uh, on the uh, random occasion that we are. And uh, speaking of timing, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Last Nighters. So thank you, John Reed, for being our guest. And uh, people can find your work at johnreedcreative.com. We will have a link to your information and everything on the show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 82. You can also find this episode on thelaunchpadmedia.com where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. And uh, with that, I'll say goodnight from last night, everybody. days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.